A Popular History of Ireland, From the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book Twelve, From the Union of Great Britain and Ireland to the Emancipation of the Catholics, by Thomas Darcy McGee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One After the Union Death of Lord Clare Robert Emmett's Emmet. The plan of this brief compendium of Irish history obliges us to sketch, for some years farther on, the political and religious annals of the Irish people. Having described in what manner their distinctive political nationality was at length lost, it only remains to show how their religious liberties were finally recovered. The first striking effect of the Union was to introduce Catholic emancipation into the category of imperial difficulties, and to assign it the very first place in the list. By a singular retribution, the Pitt administration, with its two hundred of a House of Commons majority, its absolute control of the Lords, and its seventeen years' prescription in its favour, fell upon this very question, after they had used it to carry the Union, within a few weeks of the consummation of that Union. The cause of this crisis was the invincible obstinacy of the King, who had taken it into his head, at the time of Lord Fitzwilliam's recall from Ireland, that his coronation oath bound him in conscience to resist the Catholic claims. The suggestion of this obstacle was originally Lord Clare's, and though Lord Kenyon and Lord Stowell had declared it unfounded in law, Lord Loughborough and Lord Eldon were unfortunately of a different opinion. With George the Third, the idea became a monomaniac certainty, and there is no reason to doubt that he would have preferred abdication to its abandonment. The King was not for several months aware how far his Prime Minister had gone on the Catholic question in Ireland. But those who were weary of Pitt's ascendancy were, of course, interested in giving him this important information. The Prime Minister himself, wrapped in his austere self-reliance, did not volunteer explanations even to his sovereign, and the King broke silence very unexpectedly, a few days after the first meeting of the Imperial Parliament, January twenty-second, 1801. Stepping up to Mr. Dundas at the levee, he began in his usual manner, "'What's this? What's this? This, that this young lord, Castlereagh, has brought over from Ireland to throw out my head. The most Jacobinical thing I ever heard of. Any man who proposes such a thing is my personal enemy.' Mr. Dundas replied respectfully but firmly, and immediately communicated the conversation to Mr. Pitt. The King's remarks had been overheard by the bystanders, so that either the minister or the sovereign had now to give way. Pitt at first was resolute. The King then offered to impose silence on himself as regarded the whole subject, provided Mr. Pitt would agree to do likewise, but the haughty minister refused, and tendered his resignation. On the 5th of February, within five weeks of the consummation of the Union, this tender was most reluctantly and regretfully accepted. Lord Grenville, Mr. Dundas, and others of his principal colleagues went out of office with him, Lord Cornwallis and Lord Castlereagh, following their example. Of the new cabinet, Addington, the Speaker, was Premier, with Lord Hardwick as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. By the enemies of Pitt this was looked upon as a mere administration ad interim, as a concerted arrangement to enable him to evade an unfavourable peace, that of Amiens, which he saw coming, but it is only fair to say that the private letters of the period, since published, do not sanction any such imputation. It is, however, to be observed pour contra, 
that three weeks after his formal resignation he had no hesitation in assuring the king, who had just recovered from one of his attacks brought on by this crisis, that he would never again urge the Catholic claims on his majesty's notice. On this understanding he returned to office in the spring of 1804. To this compact he adhered till his death in January 1806. In Ireland, the events immediately consequent upon the Union were such as might have been expected. Many of those who had been instrumental in carrying it were disappointed and discontented with their new situation in the Empire. Of these, the most conspicuous and the least to be pitied was Lord Clare. That haughty, domineering spirit, accustomed to dictate with almost absolute power to the privy councillors and peerage of Ireland, experienced nothing but mortification in the Imperial House of Lords. The part he hoped to play on that wider stage he found impossible to assume. He confronted there in the aged Thurlow and the astute Longborough, law lords as absolute as himself, who soon made him conscious that, though a main agent of the Union, he was only a stranger in the United Legislature. The Duke of Bedford reminded him that the Union had not transferred his dictatorial powers to the Imperial Parliament. Other noble lords were hardly less severe. Pitt was cold, and Grenville ceremonious, and in the arrangements of the Addington Ministry he was not even consulted. He returned to Ireland before the first year of the Union closed, in a state of mind and temper which preyed upon his health. Before the second session of the Imperial Parliament assembled, he had been borne to the grave amid the revilings and hootings of the multitude. Dublin, true to its ancient disposition, which led the townsfolk of the twelfth century to bury the ancestor of Dermond McMurrough with the carcass of a dog, filled the grave of the once splendid Lord Chancellor with every description of garbage. On the other hand, Lord Castlereagh, younger, suppler, and more accommodating to English prejudices, rose from one cabinet office to another, until at length, in fifteen years from the Union, he directed the destinies of the Empire, as absolutely as he had moulded the fate of Ireland. To Castlereagh and the Wellesley family, the Union was, in truth, an era of honour and advancement. The sons of the spendthrift amateur, Lord Mornington, were reserved to rule India, and lead the armies of Europe, while the son of Flood's colleague in the Reform Convention of 1783 was destined to give law to Christendom at the Congress of Vienna. A career very different in all respects from those just mentioned closed in the second year of Dublin's widowhood as a metropolis. It was the career of a young man of four-and-twenty, who snatched at immortal fame and obtained it, in the very agony of a public, but not for him, a shameful death. This was Robert, youngest brother of Thomas Addis Emmet, whose emeute of 1803 would long since have sunk to the level of other city riots, but for the matchless dying speech of which it was the prelude and the occasion. This young gentleman was in his twentieth year when expelled with nineteen others from Trinity College, in 1798, by order of the visitors, Lord Clare and Dr. Duganan. His reputation as a scholar and debater was already established within the college walls, and the highest expectations were naturally entertained of him by his friends. One of his early college companions, Thomas Moore, who lived to know all the leading men of his age, declares that, of all he had ever known, he would place among the highest of the few, who combined in the greatest degree pure moral worth with intellectual power, Robert Emmett. After the expatriation of his brother, young Emmett visited him at Fort George, and proceeded from thence to the continent. During the year the Union was consummated he visited Spain, and travelled through Holland, France, and Switzerland, till the Peace of Amiens. Subsequently he joined his brother's family in Paris, and was taken into the full confidence of the exiles, then in direct communication with Bonaparte and Talleyrand. 
it was not concealed from the Irish by either the First Consul or his minister that the peace with England was likely to have a speedy termination, and, accordingly, they were not unprepared for the new declaration of war between the two countries, which was officially made at London and Paris, in May 1803, little more than twelve months after the proclamation of the Peace of Amiens. It was in expectation of this rupture, and a consequent invasion of Ireland, that Robert Emmett returned to Dublin, in October 1802, to endeavour to re-establish in some degree the old organisation of the United Irishmen. In the same expectation, McNevin, Corbett, and others of the Irish in France, formed themselves, by permission of the First Consul, into a legion, under the command of Tone's trusty aide-de-camp, McSheehy, while Thomas Addis Emmett and Arthur O'Connor remained at Paris, the plenipotentiaries of their countrymen. On the rupture with England, Bonaparte took up the Irish negotiations with much earnestness. He even suggested to the exiles the colours and the motto under which they were to fight, when once landed on their own soil. The flag, on a tricolour ground, was to have a green centre, bearing the letters R.I., République Irlandaise. The legend at large was to be, L'Independence de l'Irlande, Liberté de Conscience, a motto which certainly told the whole story. The First Consul also suggested the formation of an Irish committee at Paris, and the preparation of statements of Irish grievances for the Moniteur and the semi-official papers. Robert Emmett seems to have been confidently of opinion, soon after his return to Dublin, that nineteen out of the thirty-two counties would rise, and perhaps, if a sufficient French force had landed, his opinion might have been justified by the fact. So did not think, however, John Keogh, Valentine Lawless, Lord Cloncurry, and other close observers of the state of the country. But Emmett was enthusiastic, and he inspired his own spirit into many. Mr. Long, a merchant, placed fourteen hundred pounds sterling at his disposal. He had himself, in consequence of the recent death of his father, stock to the amount of fifteen hundred pounds converted into cash, and with these funds he entered actively on his preliminary preparations. His chief confidence and assistance were Thomas Russell and Matthew Dowdle, formerly prisoners at Fort George, but now permitted to return. William Putnam McCabe, the most adventurous of all the party, a prefect Proteus in disguise. Gray, a Wexford attorney, Colonel Lum of Kildare, an old friend of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Mr. Long before mentioned, Hamilton, an Inniskillen barrister, married to Russell's niece, James Hope of Temple Patrick, and Michael Dwyer, the Wicklow outlaw, who had remained since ninety-eight uncaptured in the mountains. In the month of March, when the renewal of hostilities with France was decided on in England, the preparations of the conspirators were pushed forward with redoubled energy. The still wider conspiracy headed by Colonel Despard in London the previous winter, the secret and the fate of which was well known to the Dublin leaders, Dowdle being Despard's agent, did not in the least intimidate Emmett or his friends. Despard severed death in February, with nine of his followers, but his Irish confederates only went on with their arrangements with a more reckless resolution. Their plan was the plan of O'Moore and Maguire, to surprise the castle, seize the authorities, and secure the capital. But the Dublin of 1803 was in many respects very different from the Dublin of 1641. The discontent, however, arising from the recent loss of the Parliament, might have turned the city scale in Emmett's favour, had its first stroke been successful. The emissaries at work in the Leinster and Ulster counties gave besides sanguine reports of success, so that, judging by the information in his possession, an older and cooler head than Robert Emmett's might well have been misled into the expectation of nineteen counties rising, if the signal could only be given from Dublin Castle. 
If the blow could be withheld till August, there was every reason to expect a French invasion of England, which would drain away all the regular army, and leave the people merely the militia and the volunteers to contend against. But all the Dublin arrangements exploded in the melancholy emeute of the 23rd of July, 1803, in which the Chief Justice, Lord Kilwarden, passing through the disturbed quarter of the city at the time, was cruelly murdered, for which, and for his cause, Emmet suffered death on the same spot on the 20th of September following. For the same cause, the equally pure-minded and chivalrous Thomas Russell was executed at Downpatrick. Kearney, Roche, Redmond, and Howley also suffered death at Dublin. Alien, Putnam, McCabe, and Dowdell escaped to France, where the former became an officer of rank in the army of Napoleon. Michael Dwyer, who had surrendered on condition of being allowed to emigrate to North America, died in exile in Australia, 1825. Others of Emmett's known or suspected friends, after undergoing two, three, and even four years' imprisonment, were finally discharged without trial. Mr. Long, his generous banker, and James Hope, his faithful emissary, were both permitted to end their days in Ireland. The trial of Robert Emmett, from the wonderful death speech delivered at it, is perfectly well known. But in justice to a man of genius equal if not superior to his own, an Irishman, whose memory is national property, as well as Emmett's, it must be here observed that the latter never delivered, and had no justification to deliver the vulgar diatribe against Plunkett, his prosecutor, now constantly printed in the common and incorrect versions of that speech. Plunkett, as Attorney-General, in 1803, had no option but to prosecute for the Crown. He was a politician of a totally different school from that of Emmett. He shared all Burke and Grattan's horror of French revolutionary principles. In the fervour of his accusatory oration he may have gone too far. He may have, and in reading it now, it is clear to us that he did press too hard upon the prisoner in the dock. He might have performed his awful office with more sorrow and less vehemence, for there was no doubt about his jury. But withal he gave no fair grounds for any such retort as is falsely attributed to Emmet, the very style of which proves its falsity. It is now well known that the apostrophe in the death speech commencing You Viper, alleged to have been addressed to Plunkett, was the interpolation many years afterwards of that literary Ishmaelite, Walter Cox of the Hibernian Magazine, who through such base means endeavoured to aim a blow at Plunkett's reputation. The personal reputation of the younger Emmet, the least known to his countrymen of all the united Irish leaders, except by the crowning act of his death, is safe beyond the reach of calumny, or party zeal, or time's changes. It is embalmed in the verse of Moore and Southey, and the precious prose of Washington Irvin. Men of genius in England and America have done honour to his memory. In the annals of his own country his name deserves to stand with those youthful chiefs, equally renowned and equally ready to seal their patriotism with their blood, Sir Cahir O'Donnell and Hugh Rowe O'Donnell. End of chapter 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.